Good morning. Okay. <clears throat> well, it's good to be here this morning in uh, our church faith community. Pastor Rick Anderson, we they send their greetings as well, and I'm, I'm thankful to be here with all of you, and um, thank you to have, thankful to have this time in the Word together this morning. And, uh, but before we begin, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord's help again. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do bless you this morning as the God who remembers. <clears throat> Lord, it seems that the whole of Scripture could be summarized in that constant text in the Old Testament that, that you will be my people and I will be your God. That, that was your burden in your heart throughout the Old Testament, why you sent your son to die and to be raised again, to give life to a people that would never have life, and to set people free <clears throat> from the sin that has uh, just brought darkness and destruction into this world. Father, thank you for your mighty promises. Thank you for your unfailing faithfulness. We pray this morning you'd bless your word. Lord, as we look at it, you give us clear minds and hearts to see the things that would be helpful for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, to be encouraged, to be strengthened in him. Lord, to be convicted of those areas in our lives that are not conforming to what he has called us to and the grace that he has given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you turn in your Bibles this morning to uh, Corinthians 13, that's where we'll, we'll be this morning. <clears throat> First Corinthians, I'm sorry. First Corinthians chapter 13, we're looking at a very familiar chapter and one that probably even to some degree, you know, secular people will use these verses. They'll use... Uh, these texts, not understanding what they mean, because they do have a, an amazing and wide appeal to them. But we want to see them for what they are in the purpose of what God has set them forth here. And uh, as we said, in the, in the desire that we would grow in the knowledge of our Savior, because <clears throat> he is that one from whom that love comes. And he has given us his Holy Spirit, and he has put it into us and given us the capacity to love like he loves. And uh, it is the most dynamic and supreme grace out of all the other graces it would seem that so many other things come underneath that grace of love. So let's just um, introduce a few things to it. I'm probably not getting this thing working too well. Is that better? Okay. <clears throat> so what we'll do, we won't read the whole <clears throat> chapter. We'll just read it as we go through it. <clears throat> But I would just, by, <clears throat> by way of introduction, um, that's not the water issue. That's just a frog I have in my throat. <clears> by <throat> way of introduction is that chapter 13 comes in the middle, as, as you know, 12 and 14. Paul was dealing with a series of issues in the church. He had been from chapter 1 all the way to this point, been dealing in one way or the other, you know, with something that the Corinthian church needed 
to correct. And when they come to the, to the issue of spiritual gifting in the church, it became an issue for the Corinthians. It became something that uh, was not entirely understood as to the nature <clears throat> of how those gifts work out and why, they, why God <clears throat> had even given those gifts to the church. And so we want to understand 13 in, in, in light of that very issue. Because when we come to verse 31 in chapter 12, we see where it says, <clears throat> but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he says, and I show you still a more excellent way. And that's what we're looking at this morning, that still more excellent way, notwithstanding the blessings and the necessity of spiritual gifting in the church, that uh, without spiritual gifting, we wouldn't have pastors, we wouldn't have teachers, we wouldn't have servants, we wouldn't have, like, even as we would see in chapter 12, the things that Paul mentions, uh, helps, administrations, some of these other things, as along with he speaks of prophecy and tongues and apostles. But what Paul was mainly concerned with, he wanted the church to be concerned supremely about those gifts that edify the church, that build up the church with words that people can understand, with truths that the Holy Spirit enlightens and shows them, and truth that will build them in to the people that God would have them to be. And so the chaos that was going on in Corinth with kind of a clamoring after this gift and that gift, and there was just really more of a focus on the gift. And Paul says, you know, I, we need them. You need to desire them earnestly because the church grows through the gifting that the Holy Spirit gives, but that's not the primary thing. You can think of the gifting of the church like imagining a beautiful building, and you're building this building, and you would generally, as it, as it rises, you see a scaffold, all these boards and planks and pipes around it, <clears throat> and then when the building is complete, you would think it odd if they didn't remove the scaffolding. Now, once the scaffolding's removed, then you see what was being built. And the, in a sense, the spiritual gifting of the church is so important and necessary for it to be built, but it's what's being built is what's in, the most important and not to be distracted by the gifts themselves, whatever they may be. And so we'll just look at this. We'll, we'll read these first... Um, We'll start with um, verses 1 through 3, and let's just uh, begin to look at the points that Paul's making here as he seeks to correct an issue <clears throat> in the church in his day. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, he says, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing, nothing. To be the most gifted person, to know amazing truths out of the scriptures, to even be able to explain them incredibly well, uh, to understand the mysteries of the scriptures and understand the prophecies and everything there, and yet not have love. He says, you're nothing. As important as those gifts are, the grace of what God's put in you is what we're after. Even the things that we've sung about this morning. He goes on in verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And that is a very interesting comparison there, because we're looking at things where you think, well, that person definitely must be 
a loving person. No way would you take all your money and give it to the poor unless you were a person compelled by love. And yet, the Lord shows us it is possible. It's entirely possible because we can do things for amazing reasons that end up serving ourselves. It's easy to give to a nameless group of people, but to take a single individual, and regardless of how you feel about them and how difficult it may be to manifest love to them day after day, that is a miracle of grace. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Now, when we think of the, the fall of man, <clears throat> there's no more apparent area in humanity than the lack of biblical love in the heart of people. We became entirely averse to the love of God when we fell as a, as a people. And, and we don't really come to know how difficult it is until we come to Christ, begin to grow in our faith, and to begin to be challenged in this area. And we see, wow, this is a mountain I could never climb. How can I love like this text tells me to love? And yet, God doesn't call us to futility. He doesn't call us to things that cannot be done. But he calls us to the things that can be done by the power of his grace, the power of his spirit within the person. That's the whole difference between the grace of Christ in you that builds up that life in you versus the external gifting that is just there for a temporary purpose and a temporary reason and doesn't really reflect on what kind of person you are in any way whatsoever. You could be a very helpful person. You could be a very good administrator of these different gifts that Paul speaks of. You could be a, a, a wonderful teacher. You could be a wonderful servant in so many ways and yet still be lacking in this area. So we just, we want to just look at these things and, and, uh, and just be encouraged by them, be strengthened by them. Even as Paul said to the Thessalonians, he said, you know, you, he says, you don't really need to be taught how to love. He says, you are already a, a very loving group of people, but he says, do so more and more. So wherever we are at in that place in our life or in, even as a body of people, the Corinthian church had a very difficult time with it because they were so self-absorbed. The Thessalonian church was doing very well with it. They seemed to be a different people altogether. But however it is, there's an area that where we can always grow in. And so when Paul says here, basically he says, you know, if I speak with the tongues of angels, the tongues of men, and that was the gift that God had given to the church, at least the Corinthian church. You don't see it a lot in the other churches. But this, this, this dynamic with the Spirit would just give utterances, and these utterances had meaning. But unless you could interpret them, they, everyone else who was not gifted in tongues or in interpretation would just be having no idea what's being said and what's going on. Paul says, this is not edifying the church. He says, desire the greater gifts, the gifts of prophecy which would be the, the teaching gifts, the, the gifts that build the church up with, with the truth of the scriptures. And so he says, if I have the tongues, a tongue of men and angels, and I can utter all these amazing things, he says, you're, you're, you're exercising it in a selfish manner. He says, you, you, you're just like a noisy gong. People, you know, there's no distinction to anything that you're doing, and it's not helpful to the church. 
So obviously, in, in whatever regard <clears throat> God has gifted his church, it is always for the benefit of the church. He would even say that in chapter 12, for the common good of everyone. He's, he's gifted various people in different ways. All do not have the same gifts. Some, uh, everyone is different. And all don't tend towards speaking gifts or dynamically powerful gifts. They could be the gifts of help. They could be the gifts of administrations. The church needs everything, as he, as he <clears throat> so well puts out in that picture of the body that I can't, the hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you, or am I even a part of you because you're not like me? Whatever, we are diverse and we are unique in the way God has made us, but whatever giftings he's given you as you fit into the body and you serve the body and you love the body, it's the graces that we want to be after, even as we look to those gifts to build up the church, not to be anything other than other than that. So I just, <clears throat> I have no distinction, Paul says, you know, if that's all that you're doing is speaking in that manner. Then he goes on to prophecy, and you know all mysteries. You could be one of the most profound theologians and instructors of the church, and yet if you don't have the capacity, you don't have love in your heart, not your heart, but the heart that Christ has given you, if you're not manifesting love toward other people, uh, then you're, you're, you're nothing. Your ministry may even be blessing people, but you are nothing. In God's eyes, it means nothing to him. He wants to see <clears throat> the reflection of his son in you. And <clears throat> there's no, you know, as John put it in his first epistle, that seems to be such a strong theme. <clears throat> the love of God is seen through the son and then the church being called to manifest that kind of love. And then finally, what if, as we said, you know, what if I just do these incredibly benevolent, these benevolent things of giving away all kinds of things, even delivering my body over to in the sacrifice for the cause, and yet to be without love. <clears throat> Paul probably knew all these things better than anybody. He suffered a great deal. He came near to death and indeed probably died in one of the stonings. He he was taken to the third heavens. He knew things that no one knew. He knew things that he could not even talk about. <clears throat> and yet God kept him as a humble man. And here he is writing these things from great experience and understanding. I would be nothing if the Lord had not taught me how to love. And so that is the first thing, <clears throat> that love is the true measure of the Christian life. That is the true measure, not what you can do for the Lord, but who you are in the Lord as you manifest the life of Christ in your lives. And again, as we said, we, we look at it as a mountain that seems impossible to climb when we look at the nature of love. <clears throat> and our biggest problem sometimes is that we're still looking at our old nature. Our old nature is constantly there. <clears throat> it's like an annoyance. It's the first thing that comes up, it seems, in every situation. It's the first thing that makes a response to everything. It's like the first responder on the scene of everything that goes wrong or something that isn't said quite right. It is this kind of old nature that is devoid of love. And so that can, we can kind of think that we're trying to correct that nature, and we're not. We're never trying to correct that nature that nature is already separated from us. Christ has given us a new nature. And yes, we have to endure in this body. 
with that old nature still hammering away at us, but is finding that grace in Christ, the love of Christ that he's given to us through the Spirit, that we manifest those things by choice. And we want to understand, well, how do we do that? How can I do those things that Paul talks about here? So we come to a, a second part of this section, and we're going to read verses 4 through 7, where he begins to describe love. You know, love is, if somebody were to say, well, if somebody asked you, what, what do you think love is? It, it's, it's not always very easy to define, and sometimes our minds are a little bit mixed up with all the things that we thought it was before, and things that we see in the movies, and the, the, the emotion, and all the things that go along with love, and the, the sacrificial aspects of it. You know, it's easy, <clears throat> easy for, <clears throat> excuse me, for a parent to have love for a child. I mean, a, a mother's love for their children is just like tenacious. It's like you do not want to cross that woman. You know, the, a, a father's love for his wife or for his children. You know, these, these, natural, these natural aspects of love that are in us are still yet not the love the Scripture is talking about. It's not that kind of love. <clears throat> and we'll look at it. So let's see what Paul does. He doesn't try to give a definition to love. He, it's easier to describe love by what it does and what it doesn't do. And that's really what he's doing here. But as we look at it, you should notice that this is not an exhaustive list by any means. It's just simply, it's a very specific set of issues that really applied very clearly to the Corinthian church because they were behaving in all these different manners and, and, and missing the point. So let's just read this. Let's just read verses 4 through 7. So it goes on to say, after saying, I'm nothing if I have not love. And then he goes, here's what you need to have. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Seven we're going to look at differently. So he, he, he makes these descriptions. Uh, he, he sets forth these various characteristics of what love does and also what it, what it, what it doesn't do. And in this section, as we said, love is the true measure of a Christian life. Now we're looking at that love is the essential pattern for the Christian life, the pattern for life. And as we said, this is not a complete pattern. Couldn't, couldn't, we, couldn't we go and just, you could just extend that list, couldn't you? Love also doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. And it does, I mean, you could just go on and on and on. It just seems as we grow in Christ and we look at the pattern of love in the Savior, it becomes very compressed into a very clear picture of what love does, what love is willing to do, what love is capable of doing when it is divine love, when it is the love of God, when it is the love of the Son for the Father in saving a people, when it is the love of God in saving a people. Because this is really where we see that expressed uh, not only best, but we also see an access to, to, to take a hold of something we could never do and then by faith in that Christ begin to exercise it. So let's just look at a few things. I'd like just to, 
make a few statements that, about love itself. <clears throat> we could say, you know, love in a certain sense is the supreme grace. It seems so many other graces are come under it and are described by it. And in many of the other epistles, you'll find great statements of Paul about love, you know, about the, the nature of it and about the, the necessity of it in the church. And that really is what the message is about this morning. As we understand this love, we seek to be, we seek to be a people of God that are being built up in our faith, a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in, in growing in our knowledge of all that he did to save us. And through that knowledge, knowing the love of the Father through the Son and being built up into him as a people, we're all headed the same direction. And so that there begins to grow a jealousy, a spiritual jealousy in our hearts that that's what we want for all of us. That's what we want for our neighbor. That's what we want for each individual. And that's what Paul is trying to say, quit focusing so much just on those things that, that help you only but think of the church, because love primarily does that. So let's just make a few statements here. <clears throat> what can we say about love? Certainly that it is, its root and its source is only found in one place, in God himself. Even Jesus, remember what he said <clears throat> when, when the rich ruler came to him and said, good teacher, he says, there are none good but God. You know, there is a divine source. Obviously, we know the Son of God is indeed one and the same, but the, but the, the rich young ruler did not know that coming to him. So it, it, its root and source is in God himself. And again, that helps us quit thinking about how rotten we are at doing this because we never will be good at doing it <clears throat> and get it from the source. Find it in him. And then by faith, because we are set free from the old life, begin to exercise it in a way that God helps us to do so. And so let's just look at a few more things. <clears throat> really, the, we could see the, the enmity of the soul. You know, when you <clears throat> talk to people about the Lord Jesus and, and, and you, you begin to speak to them about the nature of sin and their need, and you begin to deal with issues of faith, you know, there begins to become oftentimes an enmity. You know, even if it's not outwardly known, there is just a natural aversion to God in the human condition. There's no one, as Paul that seeks, says, that seeks God. No one wants God, not the God of the scriptures. They may want a God that they've thought of in their mind that would be nice if God were this way, but they don't want the God of the scriptures. And so much is the same of our old nature. It is so averse to loving that it is it is again <clears throat> the place that we just already know to stay away from we're not going to get anything from our ourselves we're not going to get anything out of that nature it's going to come from god if it's going to come anywhere <clears throat> and so in a certain sense to commit to love as we have been loved by christ is really to go to war in a sense it is to go to war with that old nature that we are taking a stand against it in this, in this sense, not to change it, but simply not to allow it to do what it wants to do, to override it, to overrule it constantly, to say no to it all the time, to, as we grow in our understanding of the pattern of the love of God in Christ, 
then we, we in, almost intuitively know what to do in a situation. We intuitively know how to deal with something because we know how Christ would deal with that. And so we, we, it doesn't become a complicated thing. That's why I'm really not going to go point by point on each one of these issues of what love is and love is not. Again, it was a pattern to deal with the Corinthian church. But we go to war with that old nature. <clears throat> the other thing unique about love, love is such a grace that it demands interaction with other people. You can't love in a vacuum. You can't say, oh, that person's a very loving person. It's like, well, I won't know that unless I see how they treat other people, how they, how they interact in a situation with somebody that is difficult to love. You know, love is only seen. It's not an idea. It's not a theory. It's not an emotion. It's a, it's a divine reality that lives eternally in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And now we, if we indeed are those, those people of God that he's called to himself and made new through his Spirit, and by the blood of Christ cleansed us, then we have a capacity to take over, to turn away from the things that we used to do and to do the things God would have us to do. And so it demands, it, it demands interaction with other people. There are other gifts, you know, holiness, uh, other aspects of the life that we want to grow in that don't necessarily need other people for interaction to prove them. But love is that unique grace. It can't really be love unless it's focused on another person. Again, not a, not a group of people. It's easy to say, I love this, this group, or I love the homeless, or I love this. It's like, well, have you lived with a homeless person day after day and tried to help them? I think your attitude would be totally different. You'd, you'd realize, I am so short on this. I do not have the capacity. Matter of fact, it's oftentimes that when we begin to seek to deal with difficult situations, uh, difficult relationships, we find that we so, we've so habitually relied on our old nature just to kind of a, a capacity to love to a point, and yet we find ourselves coming up way short, and then we find ourselves struggling, and then in bitterness, or dealing, not knowing how to deal with a situation, because we've not understood, well, the love that you need is what God has shown to you. He sent his own son into this world as in the likeness of sinful flesh. As you all know, he, he came and he dwelt among us. He bore up under so many things and he carried his whole life as one long sacrifice of perfection until the day he could offer it up to his father to be condemned to death as a sinner for the people that he would save, many of which were in the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him. This is the love of God. This is a love that is miraculous, dynamic, and powerful, and available to us as his people. But again, as we say, we're, we're looking at, well, then how do I continually make those choices? How do I override the things that so naturally come to my mind when I'm dealing with something that's difficult? Sometimes we can think we're being loving just by being indifferent. 
Well, I don't get along with that person very well, so I just try to stay away from them. Well, <clears throat> there can be difficult times like that. But at the very least, we should be dealing with our own hearts in our prayer closets. God, help me to love this person and be praying earnestly for them. That's at least the very least we could do. And from those things, many, many things grow. But we don't allow indifference. We don't, love just doesn't work that way. It doesn't do those things. It is it's profoundly rooted in an inner life. You know, we, um, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount so much, don't we? Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, and then he would, he would speak of here's what real righteousness looks like. You know, <clears throat> even a man who looks at a woman and lusts in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Hatred doesn't start the moment I punch somebody. It, it's in the heart. And it often, so somebody may still have hatred and never physically harm anybody. The hatred is just as real, and in the eyes of God, it's just as damnable. And so we know that this life, is this, this love that God gives to us is it's rooted in the inward life, a life of devotion to Christ, a life that is growing in the understanding of just what Christ has done for you and what he does every day, who he is to you. You know, so often, you know, um, we've seen this example in the world. Maybe somebody finds it hard to be kind to somebody or loving to somebody, but they very much love this other person. And for the sake of that other person, they're willing to do a lot for this other individual. But they don't like them. They don't, I don't really, I'm just doing it for you. And in every sense of the word, in a certain way, that's what we are as believers. We do what we do for the sake of Christ, but not with an indifferent heart to say, I don't care about the person I'm helping or seeking to love. No, because the love of Christ causes us to be people who genuinely know his love for other people and how that works. It doesn't necessarily involve emotions, but it definitely involves commitment and it involves a life of <clears throat> devoted to see that person grow and be built up in their faith, knowing that one day they will be like Christ, they will be perfected like him, and they are on their way just like I am. And so these are the things that we, we begin to understand. And so as we look at these, uh, these attributes, so what we are in our heart is often what will eventually come out in our outward life. So it is, it is that we met, love manages the small things the inner attitudes, the thoughts, the little passing shadow of indifference in our heart because of maybe, I remember that time that individual said this and, or they did that, and, <clears throat> you know, and we, we let that stand in between us and our hearts toward them. Or they could be very difficult situations. They could be marital situations that have long-standing, aggravated issues and so much to unbury that it seems impossible to ever get back to a place where you love each other. And the point is, is that you cannot love Christ if you cannot love anyone in this world. You know, John said that. He says, how can you say that you love God whom you cannot see if you do not love your brother or your sister who you can see? Because God looks at it the same. Your love for him is really how you love 
each other. And we look at that and we find ourselves sometimes backed against a wall. It's like, wow, how am I going to get over all of this bitterness? How am I going to get past this so I could even want to pray for this and want to extend kindness to them, want to extend patience to them? Well, it, it should drive us back to, well, where are you at in Christ? What do you think of his love for you? Do you remember the sinful woman at Christ's feet? Christ was invited to a Pharisee's house, and while they're eating lunch, this woman comes in. She's weeping over Christ's feet, washing his feet with her tears, uh, completely broken with, with both repentance and joy that Christ would forgive her, that God would forgive her for the life that she lived. And she was undone in a good way. And all across the table is a man, Simon, who needs just as much forgiveness, but he just doesn't see it. He just doesn't see it. And he doesn't understand this display of, of love and affection toward Christ. And as Christ said, he who's been forgiven much will love much. So again, as I say, you don't have to find it in yourself, but it may mean repenting, turning back to the Christ who has saved you and is saving you and begin to deal with him. Lord, what, how have I underestimated what you have done for me? Because we see some of the parables speak of the same thing. We can be given, forgiven so much and yet somebody owes us a little bit. And yet for us, it's huge, I understand. But in the eyes of God, compared to what we owe him, it's small. And yet we will continue to persecute the person we don't forgive, even though God has forgiven us so much, much more. So if we don't start there, we won't know, we won't be able to grab a hold of that love, live in the power of it, press forth and exercise its activities against a sinful nature that is always against it, they will always think of self. When, when we fell the spotlight of, <clears throat> of, our, <clears throat> of our lives turned upon us, it turned on the me life. Every, I become now important to everything. And that's how we govern ourselves, without God. It was always supposed to be focused on God, that the spotlight of life looks at him and out of the glorious nature of who he is, in whose image I've been made and created and now recreated through my redemption in him that I seek to walk as he would walk. I seek to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. I seek to love as Christ loved. I seek, as Paul said in Romans 15, I seek to accept as Christ accepted me. I don't have to agree with everything. It's not my place to judge. It's not my place to figure out your life or understand why you like this or don't like that, but it is to accept. That is that I, I consider you a brother or sister in Christ on the way to glory, and I'm going to do what I can to encourage and to help you and to be a blessing to you. Whatever that is in the nature of how God has gifted you uniquely by his spiritual giftings, as we've been saying. And so these are the things that, that give us that capacity <clears throat> A verse you're probably familiar with in Philippians, 
1, I'll just, I'm sorry, Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, I don't know, can you, can you find any encouragement in Christ? I, it's kind of hard sometimes, and I know I'm being, I'm being facetious. But this is the way Paul writes. He's just kind of just prodding them because they had their own issues as well. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love. Oh, and we were singing about it. I mean, there are mountains of it. But it, it eludes us at times because we think so little about it. Or we let other things become more important than that. If any affection and compassion. So all these things Paul is saying, they're all there in Christ for you. That new nature you have through the Holy Spirit, those things are waiting to be used. You know, it's funny, you, you, you see people, they'll, they get interested in something, they'll buy all this stuff and all the stuff that goes with it. And then for whatever reason, they lose interest and it's all just sitting there and not even being used. And so God has given us these things in his son. But as we're going to see, we have to track them down. We have to keep track of them. And then by faith, we, we, we press against the very thing that our old nature says, I hate doing that. I don't want to do that. Well, you know what? You're going to do that. Just shut up and listen. And we just deal with ourselves. We don't allow uh, the goodness of what Christ has put in us to be overshadowed by that nature. And so he says, then do this. He says, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. And he goes on. It's, it's the most excellent chapter about what Christ did, emptied himself, though being very God, so that he could save us. And so we come to this, this last part. Love is the unconquerable grace for our life. So this is where it becomes even more important that we understand. It is a grace that will not be denied. True love. Love, as Paul is stating it, just in and of itself, it, does, it won't find an obstacle. It won't find a degree of evil and malevolence in this world that if you were to experience it, I don't know how I could rise up and love. Paul is saying, in Christ, it is always possible. This verse 7, he says, Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. Endures all things. This is like the, the, the summary verse of the whole thing. He says not only this is the pattern for life, he says this is the, the unconquerable grace for the life in Christ. Because when we really understand the love of Christ more and more and we hold on to it, we always match whatever it is that comes against us, a circumstance, a relationship, or anything, and we say, will not my love for Christ, because of his love for me, go and do that right thing? Will it not yield and give some kindness to that person? Will it not do what it must do? And we have to say, well, maybe my, the, the nature of my love for Christ is measured by what I'm not willing to do. And I don't think anybody here wants to be in that place. But when we look at it more plainly like that, then we have to say no. Like Peter, when Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me more than these? Because Peter certainly thought that he did. And Jesus was just giving him that opportunity to make a commitment to love as Christ loved him. 
And then he would tell him, well, then take care of my lambs. Feed my sheep. If you love me, take care of my people. Take care of my people. And Peter, what did he say? Lord, you know that I love you. He failed miserably. He knew that. He grieved over that. More than anything, he wanted to be that one who would die beside Christ. He wanted, but he was, again, living out of a nature that had no capacity to meet the demands. But we have a new nature. We have a nature that can meet the demands. We have Christ in us. And knowing that love, we just say, you know what? The easiest for me when I come to a situation that that's the last person I want to go deal with. That's the last person I want to really talk to. I mean, that's, that's my old nature. And it's like, but that's what you need to do. And you look at Christ and you go, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm, even if they, again, they just throw something up in my face or they just don't seem to appreciate it. You know what? Tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it again. And you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a pattern of life in you that begins to grow and you begin to know the love of God for people. And you begin to grieve over them. You, you weep for them. You pray for them. It does come, but... It has to be activity. First, you can't wait for an emotion. You can't wait for a sign. You can't wait for the golden opportunity. It is just what we cre were created to do. We were created to love. We were born again to love, to be like the Savior. And so it is able to do all these things. It, it bears all things. Literally, the word there is covers. One of the best pictures sometimes uh, in the Old Testament of covering of, of the forbearance and the mercy of God. Love is incredibly merciful. It's willing to cover over so much. I don't, mean, I don't mean allow sin and just let's pretend it's not there, but I mean with regard to offense in our own heart. And when God had Moses build the tabernacle in the desert and he put his law that he wrote with his own finger in the box, he put on the lid of that box, which you know, the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant. The covenant that God had made with his people, he covered with mercy. And it had a, two angels, two cherubs staring down at that law. Because God always sees that his law is being broken. He sees that men never keep his law. And yet the wings of the cherub overshadowing the mercy seat. And when the high priest would go in with the blood of atonement once a year, it was that God was constantly looking at his broken law. And he was covering it with mercy day after day after day. Why? So he could continue to dwell among a people who were rebellious. So he could continue to dwell and eventually save a people. He would pay the price for that atoning mercy. But it would be in the future. It would be with his son. But he just looked mercifully upon people year after year after year. And that's the love of God that he's given to you the capacity to cover the offenses of others. And that's what he says, it, that love covers all things. And this, when we say all things, we're thinking of not, you know, our minds can go on all these directions. The all things is limited to God's purpose in the church. So with regard to what God is doing in his church, building it up in his son, building it up through truth, giving it these gifts and endowments of the Holy Spirit 
so that we can minister to one another, so that we can see lost people saved and bring them into a place where God's spirit and power are working, that God has called us to that purpose and that that is the life that we are to be, to be living. So he, he, he gives us that capacity to cover things. And so when we see the all things, it really has to do with everything that is necessary for the church to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Love is able to bear it all. It believes all things. It hopes all things. You know, love, uh, in, its, in its strength, it gets its strength from believing what God has said. In the most profound sense, if God has said this, then it is true. If God has promised it, then it will be true. He, he fills my heart with faith. His word raises my hopes to the highest limits. And in those places, love responds well. Love responds well when it has a reflection on the constant mercy of God, when it's built up in a faith in the Son of God, and when it has this incredible hope of what is yet to come. Because it's not a hope that's just for me. It's a hope that's for you as well. It's a hope for people that are living in darkness who don't know the Lord yet. It is a hope that hopes for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done in the church, in the earth, just as it's being done in heaven right now. Amen. And that's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. It is a hope that has resiliency because it believes in what will be more than what it sees right in front of it today. It knows that a heart, no matter how embittered or struggling it may be, that person will not always be in that place. They will one day be something beautiful and glorious. And if I were to see myself as God sees me, I would see myself worse than the person I think that I'm struggling with to help. So it's all these things begin to converge together and give us the capacity to do what God has called us to do. And then it endures all things. It bears up under. It has an ability and a capacity to suffer long. It never runs out because it comes from an eternal source. It comes from the Savior himself. It comes from him, even as you would read John's prayer in 17 and what Christ prayed for the church. You know, that he would be in us, the Father would be in him, that we would be in them, that we would know the joy of Christ, that we would know the love of God, the most precious, intimate blessings of the fellowship that the, sh the Son shared with the Father eternally. He says, I want you to know those things. And it's out of the fullness of these things that we are able to love. So we find ourselves struggling and stumbling and not knowing where to move forward. The first place to go is go back to the Savior. Lord, how have I lost what you first gave me? You remember what the Lord said to the church in the Revelation? The one that was so good at doctrine, they knew false teachers. They, they were just amazing in every way. They, kept, they were one that were really holding the line with regard to truth. He says, but I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. You have left your first love. He says, repent and come back. You know, that we, we need 
to grow in our Savior in that way where he becomes increasingly precious to us. And out of the fullness of what he gives, we by faith, and albeit maybe stumbling and imperfect, we love like he loved. But the more we begin to refuse to do anything but that, we begin to know his love for them as well. You know, Paul, as much as he was hated by his own kinsmen, stoned, uh, harassed, harangued in every way, he says, I grieve for them, you know, in my heart so much. He says, it's almost unbearable in Romans, the beginning part of chapter 9. You know, and that's where his heart, he had Christ's heart. For the lost, he had Christ's heart. For those he knew would come into the kingdom. That's, that's not just for an apostle. Because remember, if he is an apostle without love, he has nothing. And every one of us has a capacity to love as Christ would love because he, he will help us. But we'll just end with, quickly, with the last part. It, it really is just coming to the supremacy of love. That love is the supreme thing. Going back to the idea of <clears throat> Corinthians, you, you, you all are so concerned about the gifting. He says it's really here to serve the graces. He says because the gifting, like we said, is a scaffold that's going to come down. It's, it's going to not be needed anymore one day. You know, we're not going to be reading Bibles in heaven and reading commentaries and going to Bible studies. We will see the Son of God face to face and we will know him even as we are known. These gifts are given by the, by the Holy Spirit as helps right now to build us up in that faith. And so he says, one thing love never does, it never fails. See, the gifts will cease. They won't be needed anymore. But love continues on. What you are becoming now, you will be all the more perfected in glory. It is the grace that continues from here and goes on permanently. He says, <clears throat> Because where there's prophecies, they will be done away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will be done away with. It's not that we won't know anything. It's just the idea that some know more than others because of the nature of that gifting. That goes away. We will all know as we are known that that gifting of knowledge is no longer needed because when we see him, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. And so he goes on to say, for now we only know in part Put all the theologians together and all the brilliant men from all the ages since Christ ascended to heaven and they only know a fraction of what can be known in glory, if that can be imagined. And sometimes as men, we think we know so much. We think we have it nearly all figured out. We get our eschatology, we get our theologies, we get it all lined up and we know so little compared to what we shall know. But we need the knowledge we have now. It's a gift of God to us, but it is to be left behind at one point, and we will go on to know him fully. We know in part, we prophesy in part. When the perfect comes, he says, then <clears throat> the partial will be done away with. And he puts it like this. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, like a, I think like a child, reason like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish things behind me. It's such a good illustration, isn't it? This is the nature of, of uh, the, the blessing and the enduring of love versus the giftings of the church itself, because the giftings are like that little child. We are, we are in the place and we, we, 
we, as a child, we think of things so differently. But when we are an adult, we think completely different. And we don't return to the old ways. And he's just saying that's the nature of what it will be like when we're with him in glory. Now we see as in a mirror dimly. No matter how much we know and how much we see, we still see but little of Christ. And yet we want to grow in all that we can in the grace and knowledge of him. And yet it is seen that we see dimly, but then face to face. And so 13, now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. In heaven, there won't be a need for faith. In heaven, there won't be a need for hope. But these are so essential to us now to grow, to use our faith, to mine out the blessings of Christ, to look at him through the eyes of faith, no matter how dimly that is, and grow in that understanding and hope in what he's given to us because love lives out of the fullness of what those things can bring to us. And so this is the, Paul's concern for them. And so he ends it with a final word. He just says in 14.1, he says, so what? Pursue love and earnestly desire the spirits, what he would call spirituals or spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the help and the assistance of the Holy Spirit to build up the church, to know the love of Christ. But he says, pursue love. That is the, the more difficult one. Literally, the word is to, to, to persecute it, to track it down, to go after it. And so it just highlights again, it's not something that just comes naturally to us. But God gives us the capacity to track down the love that is in Christ, to hold it firm, and then by the faith we have in him, turn and little by little do the things that only he could allow us to do. Well, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we... We thank you that you have privileged us so that even when we think of some of the great prophecies in, in the Old Testament, uh, in Isaiah, where we would be clothed with garments of salvation, that we would be so immersed in a life that is holy, that is beautiful, that is like your nature, Lord, that you have called us to be such a people, even as you said that you will be my people and I will be your God. That you will be like me because I am your God and you have come to find your fullness in me. That relationship was one from ancient times until now that you are finishing and completing until the day when we will be with you forever. That we will see the Son of God coming in his glory and in the twinkling of an eye we shall all be changed. Lord, help us to see these things, to live by, upon them, to, to keep them consciously in our minds and hearts. And when we really struggle and we see, we find very unkind things coming up in our heart, we already know we don't expect anything else to be there in that nature. And we turn continually to the life you've given to us and by faith we act, and we live, and we say no to the things that are wrong. We say yes to the grace that is in Christ, and we find you helping and assisting us. Lord, help us 
to know these things more and more. Help us where we have wandered from our understanding of the love of God in Christ and where we find ourselves empty and dry and we, we're trying to live out a Christian life through just the dryness of what we, we remember and what we know rather than fresh visitations, Lord, from you in our hearts through times of prayer, through times of your word, through pursuing you. Lord, we thank you that you are so merciful and so willing to give us all that we need. Help us to be hungry to always come to you and seek you until we get what we need in order to love each other, in order to grow as a people. Lord, bless your church. Abundantly provide for it. Lord, enrich us in every way through your Holy Spirit that we can encourage each other and build each other up and that we can reach a world that is perishing. Father, we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.